0: Do a lot of traditional things uh, as a church, but one of the things that the church uh, historically does traditionally is somebody says he is risen, and then people respond by saying he is risen indeed so we 're going to do that. I know that not everybody here uh, believes, and that 's totally fine you don 't need to say it, uh, but for those of you that do, here we go ready He is risen, risen that 's right, and that 's why we uh, spend together today we we spend this day celebrating Easter, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And the the reason that we gather is because the resurrection has this crazy claim. The message of Easter, the message of the resurrection claims that if this is true, it has the power to absolutely reorient our lives. The message of Easter, the truth of Easter, of the resurrection says, if it's true, then it has the power to heal the deepest hurts that we have. Whatever those might be for you, whatever sufferings, whatever things in your past that you've experienced, the resurrection claims that it has the power to heal the deepest hurts that we have, to bring into our lives the deepest joy that maybe we have not experienced before and to give us a deep sense of purpose and to give us a deep sense of meaning. These are these are big claims that the resurrection makes, that Easter makes. And this is what we will be talking about today. And we're going to look at a story of a man named Paul. And Paul was an early Christian leader. He was an early Christian leader that started many of the early Christian communities. Started much of the church that then boomed across the world in the Roman Empire to begin with. And Paul was a man that would go into many of the major cultural centers. And we're going to look at a story where he goes into Athens. And Athens was a place today that would be like a Hollywood or an L.A. or a New York or even a Denver, a place that has cultural significance, that the areas around it depend upon, that the areas around it are influenced culturally by. Athens, when you think of Athens, you think of Socrates and Plato and, and these kind of big people that were, that were philosophers. And Athens was still this cultural center, a major cultural center that Paul goes into. And it has huge influence in the areas around it. And Paul comes talking about the resurrection. Paul looks around the city and he sees all of its greatness. And think about Denver with all the great things that that Denver has to offer or other places, other major cities. Paul says, man, I see all of this greatness in Athens. And I see all of this need as many cities have. There's a lot of need in cities, a lot of pain in cities. And Paul says, I see all the greatness. And I see all of the need. And yet what Paul says is, you know what this needs You know what this great city needs? And this would be the same for Denver if Paul were to come here today. You know what this great city needs? With all of its greatness and all of its hurt, it needs the resurrection, which is a weird thing to say because there's a lot of things that Paul could have brought, a lot of things that Paul could have talked about, but what Paul says is what they needed. And what we need is the resurrection. And and we need to look at what Paul says because it's very important, not just for them, but for us. We need the same things that they needed. And Paul says, if you want the resurrection to, to touch your life, to reorient, to bring the power of life into death, here, here's what we need to see. We need to see the problems that we have and, and how the resurrection is the answer to that. And, and then what we must do, how we must respond. So we're going to read the beginning of this story, and then we'll kind of look at it piece by piece as we, as we go along. So he, here's, here's the beginning of what it says in Acts Acts 17. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He goes into Athens. He goes into the cultural center. He goes into the the marketplace where people are talking about ideas. He talks to the influential people, and he talks about Jesus and the resurrection. and, And it says this, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now here's where we begin. What is our problem? What's the problem that we have? And you know what it says? Paul shows up to this city. Paul shows up to the city and he looks around and it says that he sees it's full of idols. And if you even go to Athens today, I don't, I've never had the privilege of doing that. Maybe some of you had. But you can still see and you can just imagine. I mean, there was many temples constructed, massive temples. This is today. And there's massive construction that was done to honor all the different gods that they had. And this is not, uh, those are many statues. But if you remember from your middle school class or whatever, or the Hercules Disney movie, all the different Disney, I mean, not Disney gods, all the different gods that there were. Disney has its gods as well. But all the different gods that there were, these are statues that would have been there. And gods filled the city. I was reading a book recently that was talking about what it was like, what gods, what idols were like. And it wasn't the way we think of it. It wasn't only that there was the temples there were. But gods were everywhere. If you were going to go on a trip, you may pray to the god Poseidon for his traveling mercies as you would go on the sea. If you needed love or fertility, you may pray to the goddess Aphrodite. If you needed wisdom, you may pray to the god Athena. If you needed uh, to fight or to to war against somebody, you may pray to the god Mars or, or all these different gods that there were. But it wasn't even just those gods. Different families had their gods. Different tribes and different ethnic groups had their gods. Different guilds had their gods. If you were an iron worker, you would pray to the certain god that was responsible for the iron guild. If you were a baker, you might... Pray to Martha Stewart God or some other God that was responsible. All the different people had gods. There was gods all over the city. For anything and everything that you can imagine, there was gods filling the city. Paul says it was full of idols. He looks around the city and sees, man, these are people that are desperate. These are people that are desperate. Because what would it mean if you saw a city filled with gods? What would it mean if you saw a city full of idols Whatever it would be for, for your job or for travel or for love or for family. all oh, what would that mean? You know what that means? It means these people wanted help in their lives. He looks around and he sees a city full of gods representing different things and different helps. And Paul knows this is a people that are desperate for help. This is a people that have deep longings in their life, that they want salvation, that these are people that, that are craving for someone to intervene in their life that actually cares. Paul looks around and he sees that it's filled with, filled with longing for help. You, you know what Paul does? He looks around this city and he says, I, I, I can see it's filled. And later he'll say, I can see you're a deeply religious people. He sees the city filled with spirituality, filled with mentions of God, with cravings for God. This is very much like our World today, We might not think of our world as a religious place, but if Paul were to show up here today, I believe he would see the same thing. I would believe that he would see a place, a city that is filled with spirituality, that's filled with mentions of God that reveals there's a hunger for something. It's interesting, if you look in our world today, how much mention of God or how much craving for spirituality is, whether it's in TV or music or all over the place. Let me just give you some examples that shows our world is craving for God, even if we don't know it, even if you don't know it. these are this just some examples. This is tonight, uh, and I don't work for NBC or whoever's showing this, but tonight, John Legend and the Jesus Christ Superstar cast on faith and musicals. This is tonight. They're going to be doing a live show talking about Jesus Christ on on TV, hitting millions of people. Or if you look at uh, TED, you go to the front page of TED. There's a giant picture that says the role of faith and belief in modern Africa. So when people are even thinking intellectually and the ideas to shape the world, one of the major things that's on there is faith and belief. Or if you look at music on the Billboard Hot 100, the number one song right now is God's Plan by, by Drake. We're going to be singing that later in, this, in the service <laughs> today. Uh, Nick doesn't know that, but now he does. Um, but even in music, the number one song has, and I'm not saying this is a Christian song, it just mentions of God, this hunger for spirituality that is present. Or if you look at a movie like Black Panther that's making billions of dollars across the globe. What is this movie about? Yes, it's about a superhero, but isn't it, isn't it about, if, you've, if you haven't seen it, then you should see it tonight, but uh, instead of Jesus Christ, well, I don't know, John Legend, Black Panther, it's hard, it's hard. Um, <laughs> but here's what it's about. It's about a king from another world, a king from another world that our world desperately needs to come in and set things right, a king from another world that we need to bring justice and right the wrongs that have been done. Does that not sound spiritual to you? Does that not sound something divine to you? Or, if you look at even our literature, one of the best selling books and one of the best selling authors in the last handful of years is a woman named Brene Brown. She has one of the most seen TED Talks as well. And much of her career has been built on talking about shame. If there is such a, I mean, if there's any religious word out there, it's shame. Religion, for the longest time, has had the market on talking about shame. And somebody comes along and begins to talk about, look, you've got a deep wound. You've got a need. Shame needs to come out of your life and belonging. And her writings, I've read, are very actually filled with spiritual things, saying there's hunger in you spiritually. Or if you look at our music, often, this is the Grammys this year, in response to national tragedies, how do we often respond It's with a hunger for God and spiritual things. This is a song that they played, Tears in Heaven, in response to the Las Vegas shootings. Tears in Heaven. Tears in Heaven, or they also sang this. This is Kesha with a choir of women behind her singing a song called Pray at the Grammys. You see, even at a national level, in response response to tragedies, in response to cries for justice, often... What is it that we have in us? It's this hunger for God, this mention of spirituality. And even in our TV, this is an article recently in The Atlantic that says, Pop culture is having a metaphysical moment. The OA, Westworld, Stranger Things, and other recent works toy with the idea of multiple realities and bring the thrill of new religion. And here's the quotes at the end of the article that summarize it. Perhaps more than anything, these are all secular takes on the promise of the divine. And they end with this. At a time of falling church attendance and talk of widespread spiritual crisis, fiction may be stepping in to offer some of the imaginative comfort that religion has long provided. You see, here's what Paul sees. Here's what he would have seen in Athens. Here's what he would have seen if he were to come to Denver. He he looks around and says, you're deeply religious. This is a place full of idols. There's mentions of God and spirituality everywhere. You can't escape it. Even in people, even when there's falling church attendance, even when people don't claim religion, there is mention of God and spirituality everywhere. That people are hungry, that they want help, that they want joy, that they want comfort, that they want removal of their shame, that they want forgiveness, that they want acceptance, that they want righteousness, that they want identity, that they want worth, that they want value, that they want all of these things that are hunger. For spiritual things, Paul looks around and says, I see it's full of idols and yet not satisfied. And yet not satisfied. Isn't it interesting? Paul says the city was full of idols. Why would it need to be full of idols? Couldn't couldn't one of them just provide the need? But to be full of idols, to have a city, even like today, where we are full of mentions of God and spirituality, it means it's not working. It's not satisfying those hungers and those needs that we have. Paul would say to us, you are full of literature on helping you with spiritual things. You are full of things that are claiming to be able to bring life, but it's not working. They were full of idols. They had spent massive amounts of money constructing temples, massive amounts of time dedicated to sacrifices to idols. We spend massive amounts of time. And yet it's not enough, which is why it's interesting that Paul makes the claim that These people were always looking for something new. Isn't that... I mean, if something could describe us as a culture, isn't that us? Always looking for... He says, they are full of idols. They've tried everything. They have worshipped every god. They've prayed to every god. And yet, always looking for something new. Filling, 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 and yet never satisfied. Does this not describe us? Are we not in so much debt? Why? Because we're always looking for something new and yet never satisfied. Why have you had so many relationships? Why do, we even, why do we even commoditize relationships where we can swipe and just find whoever we want? Always looking for something new, yet never satisfied. Why even, as beautiful as a thing as it is, why are we just have this thing where we just have to travel all the time or try new places all the time? Because there's this hunger for something new, something new. Maybe this will be the thing. Maybe this will f- fill the hole in my heart and my soul. Maybe this is what will satisfy. He says of them, the city was full of idols. They tried it all, and yet they were experts at trying new things. They were always looking for something new. He says that's what they did with their time. And it says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. I spent a lot of time thinking about that this week. Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Why would his spirit be provoked? You know why? Because he looks around and says, man, you are hungry for something. You want something. You are craving something. And you're not getting it. It's not working. And he would want something for them more than what they have. It says his spirit was provoked in him, and that was not a provocation as we will see that leads to him angrily saying, you are all stupid for your gods. Turn off Jesus Christ superstar. Stop watching Stranger Things. That's not what he did. It says his spirit was provoked within him, but it was a spirit of provocation that led to compassion. Because what Paul sees is here is a people. He looks around and sees people desperate for some sort of spiritual satisfaction desperate for some sort of thing that can help their hearts and help their souls, and he sees that they don't have it, that they're grasping, that they're trying, and it says his spirit was provoked within him. He wants something more for them. So, is there an answer? Is there an answer to the various longings we have? Is there an answer to these longings that we have that show up all throughout our world and our music and our TV, or, or is it it? Do we just have longings and and it can never be satisfied. There's always a hunger for something new, but it can never be fulfilled. If we've tried everything, what's left? And what's interesting is they bring Paul in. These people are experts at new stuff, right? They're experts at new stuff. And yet, what do they say about Paul? They say, what you're saying is strange. This is true today. What these people recognized, what these brilliant philosophers from a brilliant city recognized is everything sort of sounds the same. That if you, if you study this thing, if you pursue this idea, if you read this thing, everything sort of has a similar thread running through it. But when they hear Paul talk about Jesus and the resurrection, they say there's something strange about what you're talking about. There's something different about what you're saying. There's something that we have not yet heard before. We've heard things new all the time, and yet it says that what he said was very strange to them. And, and here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul brings to them. Here's his message. This is the Areopagus. It's um, this is not Paul. I don't know who that is, but um, maybe his name's Paul. I don't know. But this it's still there today. It was a place that they would bring ideas to listen to and hear. And here's what Paul says. He says, so, well, he doesn't say that. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He would say this to us. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Paul says, look, I looked around. I saw all these idols. And then I even saw one that said, to the unknown God. And it's interesting that you actually, in archeological digs, they found uh, pieces. I know you can't read this, I can't either, but it does say, to the unknown God. That doesn't mean this was the exact one that Paul saw, but these were there in very religious societies and very religious cultures. They also would say, look, we're worshiping all these gods, but maybe there's a God we don't yet know. Maybe that's the one that will satisfy. Maybe that's the one that will help. Maybe that's the one that will fulfill. And Paul says, what you worship as unknown, what you worship as unknown, I will proclaim to you. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying, you're right. There's a God you don't know. Paul's saying for all of your religious hunger, for all of your spiritual searching, for all of your desire for help, there's still a God you don't know about yet. There's still a God that if you knew, that if you knew, maybe this would be the God that could change your life. Maybe you've tried everything else, but this is the God that you actually need. Paul says, what you don't know, I'll tell you about. And he says, there's something about God that will change everything. There's something that you don't know about the one and only true God that if you knew would change everything. And here's what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now that might not sound that uh, weird to us, but to them standing around these massive temples, Paul's saying, waste of money. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor, and this is so important, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is a revolutionary idea about God. Paul says, you want to know what the answer is? There's a God that you don't know about. This is true for us. There's a God that we don't know about. See, Paul says, let me tell you something different about God. He's not served by you. He's not helped by you in any way. That we cannot bring anything to God. See, most people's idea of God, most people's conception of God is in some way Man, I need to do things to please God. I need to do things and bring those to God, and then maybe God will favor me. God will love me. God will help me. I need to sacrifice. This is what would have been normal for them and us. I need to sacrifice for God, or I need to be good for God, or if God is up there, and they had a very uh, similar view that we have in God in some ways that it wasn't this personal relationship, but kind of, yeah, God's up there, but it doesn't mean he's an active involved part of my life. They said, Paul says, look, there's a God that you think you have to work for. You think you have to please. You think you have to serve. But let me tell you something. God is not served by human hands. I mean, if we think about it, that makes sense. I mean, trying to help God or trying to serve God or trying to do something. Even, God, I'm going to live a moral life for you. Sometimes people make vows. God, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. Like, God needs whatever we could bring to him. It would be like going to the Broncos team and saying, look, if you guys do a good job, I'll give you this nice jersey. And they're going to say, "Um, I've got one. That's what it is to come to God, to go to Bill Gates and say, I've got some cash if you do me a favor, brother. He's going to say, I don't need that. In fact, I'm going to light this on fire, you know, and blow a million-dollar bill in your face, you know. That's what he did to me one time. Um, That's slander. Let's delete this sermon. That didn't happen, okay? Um, it, It doesn't work. There's nothing we can bring to God. There's nothing we can offer to God. Paul says, look, there's a very different conception of God that you've never heard about, that you've never experienced. A God, really, here's what Paul's getting at, a God of grace. A God who at his fundamental character is a God that gives to us. See, when you think of God, and I know this is true, when we think of God, and and you know this, when we think of God, we mainly think of what does God want from me? God might want my time. God might want my money. God, God might want my things. God might want my sacrifices. God might want, what does God want from me? Paul says, look, you don't understand the very heart of God is that God is a giver that wants to give to you. That At God's core, who God is, is somebody that gives life and breath and everything. That's a God of grace, who at his very core is somebody that says, I come to give. I come to give. Now, this is very good news to those of us that would find ourselves in a position of weakness or sin. That God is a God that comes to give. See, if you're somebody that thinks that you can do good things and God will then please you, then this is actually bad news. Because if it says you can't serve God, you know what that does for those of us that maybe grew up in church or have religious background and, and feel pretty competent in ourselves? We've lived pretty good lives. It's actually insulting. Because it says there's nothing you can do to bring to God. That's an insult if you've lived a good life. And that may be even part in your heart of why you don't, if you're honest with yourself, and I know this isn't everybody, but I know for many people this is true. We don't actually like God. You might believe in him, but it doesn't mean you like him. Because you feel like you constantly have to please him. You're constantly trying to get on his good side. And if you think you can do that, and you look at other people and look at their failings and and go, man, why can't they pull it together like I've done? This message is actually insulting because it says there's nothing you can bring to God. But for those of us that feel, man, I mess up all the time. I'm a jerk to my kids. I'm rude to my spouse. Man, I keep sinning and I can't get out of it. Man, I struggle. Man, my life is marked by failure after failure. Man, my life is marked by weakness after weakness. Man, I have struggled in my life and I keep struggling. This is a beautiful message because it says God doesn't need anything from you. God just wants something for you. It says, look, you may be be struggling all the time thinking that the way you relate to spirituality or God or religion or whatever it is is to work hard. And Paul says, no, you don't understand. God doesn't need anything from you. God just wants something for you. He's a God of grace. He's a God that gives life and joy and breath and everything, Paul says. This is the answer to our deepest longings. God wants something for us. We're all all fighting. We're all longing for help, just like they were. We're all fighting and longing for some sort of spiritual help, whatever that is, to get rid of our guilt, to get rid of our shame, to experience comfort. We're all fighting for things that God says, I freely give to you. If you know me, if you're in relationship with me, I freely give to you what you're fighting for and craving for. And so many other places. This is what Paul says. And then, and then Paul, Paul continues. He says, why are those longings there? Why do we have these restless longings that are present? God may be the one that says he comes to give, but why is that there in the first place? And I love what Paul says. He says, talking about God, and he made from one man, talking about all the way in the beginning, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, saying God determined the time that they would live and the place that they would live, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For, and he quotes, he quotes their own poets, saying, look, this is evident in your, in your world, in your culture, your own thinkers and authors and poets are... We're talking about this the same way that we do. In him, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone and an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, here's what Paul says in the answer to our longings. He says, you want to know why those restless longings are there? You want to know why your, your whole city is full of idols? You want to know Denver? Why our world, we cannot escape no matter how far away we move from Christianity as a, as a city, as a, as a world. As, no matter how far we move, we still can't escape in our music, and our TV, and the Grammys, and the Oscars. We still can't escape this spiritual hunger, this God talk, these desires. Paul says, you want to know why you've got those restless longings in your life? Because everything in your life, from the place that you were born, to the age and the time that you live in. Everything in your life, Paul says, was designed by God to lead you to Him. Everything in your life, even the frustrating things, maybe especially the frustrating things, the broken promises and the failures in your life and the hurts and the things that have caused you pain and the things that you put your all into and they didn't work out. Paul says those things, have all been designed to lead you to him. That he, he, he gives this picture of we're kind of feeling around in the dark. We're kind of in the dark grasping. And, and Paul says he put all of this there that you might perhaps feel your way towards him because he's not actually far from us. Paul says, look, I see your culture. I see you're religious. I see you have a lot of gods. You want to know why you've got these longings? Because you have these longings and desires to lead you to him. We, all of us, we've got longings for comfort in our life. And the world never satisfies it. We've tried. You've got longings for beauty in your life. And you look at beautiful things, but it still doesn't satisfy. You've got longing for love in your life, and you think maybe a relationship or a child will help, but it doesn't quite satisfy. You have longings for forgiveness or for worth and value and not to feel shame but it doesn't quite satisfy whatever you've tried. Paul says we've got these longings, these deeply spiritual longings in us that never quite satisfy because they're actually for him. These longings, these desires we have are actually for God. And so this world will never be able to actually provide it. Only God will because the desires and the longings, the hungers, the the impulses that we're driven by, they're actually for him. I was thinking about this. There's an analogy with this. If you you think about, uh, maybe some of you have studied this or at least took one class in college or something, but behavioral psychologists will talk about much of our behavior today. Much of our behavior today, they will say, and you don't necessarily even have to agree with this theory if you don't want to, that's fine. But just this is what they say, that much of our behavior today is driven by kind of our primal instincts to survive, to further the species. So you look at a lot of the different behaviors that we have today, and a lot of it can be explained if you go back here and go, we had this initial drive to make sure that we survive, to make sure the species continues And so, so much of what we do now, it's not, we're not thinking, I need to survive. My species must continue. Well, maybe some of you are, and that's weird, but we're not thinking that. I mean, I guess, yay for you and the human race, thank you. Um, We're not thinking that, but there's this inner impulse that's there that we're driven by. So if you think about many of the, uh, and I won't get too deep into this, but many of the traits that are attractive to male and females, they'll say those are because those were for fertility. That's all I'll say. Or you might think um, a man named Simon Sinek, who has written a lot, has got one of the most popular TED Talks, has written a lot about um, the circle of why, and he has a book on leadership that he talks about. Man, a lot of what works today in leadership is when people feel they're in the circle of safety and they're safe. Why is that? Well, it's because back here, people needed leaders to make sure they were safe from saber-tooth tigers or whatever it was. And so today, people, if they feel safe by a leader, that the the community actually thrives. Or or one that I find particularly interesting, because it's it's really true for me, is why is it that this is always the most expensive place? Why is it that, I mean, think about it. Why is it the lakefront view or the the ocean view or the water view, why is that always the most expensive? Just because there's water there? And what I was reading this week is talks about, well, I mean, think about it. If, the, if you need survival, if you need to keep, water is very important to that. And nobody is like, I think I'm going to buy the lakefront house because I need to survive and have water. No, nobody's thinking about that today. But maybe there's this internal drive, this internal impulse in us that's leading us to something, even though we can't explain it. This is what Paul is saying. Paul saying, you've got an inner drive in you that maybe you can't even explain. You've got an inner impulse in you because you're actually a child of God. You're God's offspring. He made you. You belong to him. You're his. And you're trying all these different things. You're trying all these different gods. You're hungry for all, and and no matter how new it is, no matter how much you try, no matter how much money you spend, no matter how many people you cycle through, it doesn't work because it's an impulse that's only intended to lead you to God. I love how C.S. Lewis, an old Christian author and Oxford professor, he said it this way. He said that if, if, we, if we find that nothing on this world can satisfy our desires, maybe it means that we were made for another world. This is what Paul is saying. God has designed everything in your life to lead you to him, that the only thing that will actually fulfill the only answer to our longings is the God that made us. And he says, You have, you've got ideas of God. You've got ideas of spirituality, but he says there's something better than you can even imagine. Look, look what he says here. He says, god's, We're God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, we don't have gods of gold and silver or stone in the same today, but Paul would say the same. God is better than your imagination. No matter what what concept that we could build of God or spirituality or no matter what we do, he says, this God, a God of grace, a God that has come to give to you, is different from anything you've heard and is better than anything that we could imagine. And then he says that ultimately we experience this in Jesus. Here's the next part. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere, in every time, in every city, from Athens to Denver, to repent, which is to turn to him. Repent doesn't mean stop being a bad person and start being a good person. It means turn from the other gods and the other cravings and the other longings that you have and turn to the one true God that you actually belong to. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness By a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, the answer to our longings ultimately, the way that we ultimately see God that is a God of grace for us, it's a God that pursues us and wants us, is in Jesus. That God is calling us. He says, look, the times of ignorance are past. Meaning God is saying, look, time's up. No more pursuing other things. Come to me. I want you. Says the times of ignorance are past, and now I want you to come to me so you can experience the life that I have for you. Life with me forever. And he says we see this in Jesus. In Jesus, we see a God of grace that does not hold our sin against us but dies for our sin and forgives us. In Jesus, we see a God that pursues us, that doesn't only put things in our life to kind of draw us to him, but actually comes to us and says, I want you, come to me. In Jesus, we see exactly what Paul was talking about. And Paul says, you know how we actually know this? You know what the ultimate kind of proof in the pudding is, the assurance, he says, that we have this? God sent Jesus, he died on a cross, his blood was shed, his body was broken, he was brutally tortured and maimed, And then he raised from the dead, which validates everything that he says and everything who he claimed to be, this this very God. Now, how did they respond? What does it mean? What does it mean for us? How did they respond? We can see how maybe we would respond. And here's what we'll close with. There's three different ways that they responded to this. Here's what happened. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagites, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. What does this mean for our lives? Here, here's how we respond. Here, here's how they responded. It's the same three ways. There's three different ways. There was a division when Paul talked about the resurrection. There was a split. There was a division and a split. There was three different groups of people. And I, and I would... Wager that the same three groups are here today. Paul talks about the resurrection, and people are divided on what they think. Rightfully so, because it's a big claim. The first group, people mocked him. They thought he was crazy, which is kind of a crazy thing to say. That's actually a really valid response. You should doubt the resurrection. Because if somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, yo, I raised from the dead. You should probably go, Nope, I'm not sure about that. I need some evidence. Like that's a claim that's a huge claim that has a huge uh, claim on your life if it's true. So you should doubt that. You should question that. It's valid to do so. And Paul doesn't go through this, but just because I know some are like what was there, some mocking, some thinking, I think this is kind of crazy. I want to give you just three lines of reasoning quickly of why people that study history say, that the resurrection, I'm not saying everybody that studies history, obviously there's people that don't believe this, but three kind of lines of reasoning that say, here's how we know the resurrection happened. I'm going to give you three just quick things. The first is this, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. See, if the disciples went around claiming, Jesus is alive, don't you think the enemies would have wanted to say, well, actually, here's his body. It would have been a really, it's a falsifiable claim. It's a really easy thing to prove. False. It's really easy to go, nope, his body's right there. Guess you're wrong. He's dead. That's a, look, any time we don't believe something, I think this is why Google was invented, is to settle disputes between siblings. I mean, how many times have you been arguing with somebody like, let's just Google that, right? We've got this impulse in us. Remember, I lost a bet one time right when Google was getting big, and I was like, dang it. I lost a bet of you know the song, I just died in your arms tonight. I thought it was Journey, but it's not. And I was like, it's Journey. I swear it. I know it. And they were like, no, it's not. And then Google had just come out, and it was like, oh, I guess I owe you five bucks. And this is a little bit bigger of a claim than that. <laughs> Sorry. I'm still bitter. Google... <laughs> But we always, we we've got that instinct. If someone claims something that we think is false, we've got an instinct in us to go, nope, I, I can show you. Let me give you one example. Some people think the earth is flat, okay? Some people think the earth is flat. There's a man this week that built a rocket. This is, this is real. Flat earth rocket man finally blasts off in homemade rocket to prove earth is flat. So this man says, look, I will show you the earth is not round, it's flat. So he builds a rocket. This is the before picture, this is the after picture. <laughs> Okay, But this is the same thing with the tomb. It's the same thing with the tomb. We've got an impulse in us that says, if it's false, I can prove it. If the, tomb was, if the tomb still had Jesus in there, it'd be a really easy thing to show was false. Second line of reasoning that people give is this. There was eyewitnesses. Hundreds of people claimed to see Jesus risen from the dead. In documents written only 15, 20 years after Jesus, People are saying, look, there's hundreds of people that saw this. Paul says, there's hundreds of people. You can go talk to them. He gives names. He says, go talk to them. Go ask them. But especially this with the eyewitnesses. All of the gospels, all the stories about Jesus, they all say that women were the first ones, the first ones to see Jesus. The first eyewitnesses were women. Now listen, you, look, ladies, you know it's hard in this world you know, it's hard in this world. It's a, it's a man's world. It's awful, right? I, I, I get it. I mean, I don't really get it, but I, I agree with you. Okay. It's bad. But a couple thousand years ago, a lot worse. A couple thousand years ago, a lot worse. You know what it was said about women, their testimony. If they were saying, look, I saw this. I saw that. You know what was said about them? Here's a historian At the same time. Jesus, same Jesus time. Here's what he says. Not a Christian guy. This is just what people thought. But let not a single witnesses be credited, but three or two at the least. And those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives, but let not the testimony of women be omitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. This is Josephus, famous historian, one of the most famous historians that there are, not a Christian. This was the sentiment. Don't trust a woman or... 200 year, uh, about 100 years, 150 years after Christianity, one of the biggest critics of Christianity, the biggest critics of Christianity. He wrote this massive thing kind of attacking Christianity. Only like 100 years after Christianity was around, where it got started. You know what one of his biggest attacks on Christianity was? Here's what he says. Yes, that's not him, but that's what he looked like. Celsus. After death, he rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say. Now, here's my point. All the gospels say it was women that saw the resurrection. It was women that saw the resurrection first. It was women that saw the resurrection first. If you want to make something up, if you want to make something up, you would not say it was women. If you wanted to make something up and for it to gain traction, you would have said, look, four burly dudes. They saw it. They saw it all. There wasn't a woman in sight. And these four burly guys, they saw it they still smelled like fish. They were tough and they saw the resurrection. Believe it. But they all claimed it was women that saw it. If you're making it up, the only only reason that they would have all said that, knowing, man, people are not going to think this is true. People are going to think that we're crazy, that we're basing it on this. The only reason you would do that, knowing that it would harm your message a little bit, is if it actually happened. And finally, final third line of reasoning is just the spread of Christianity. There was so many, there was so many false messiahs. So many people that said, I'm the messiah. And then you know what happened? They died. And everyone was like, guess he wasn't the messiah. And they left. That happened a ton of times. Jesus wasn't the first person that showed up and said that. It happened over and over again. But you know what happened? The movement died out. It was done. But Christianity shows up Jesus claims to be the Messiah, and then it actually spreads. It blows up across the world, and you take these people, these Jewish 12 people that would have been very devoted to God, going to the temple, making sacrifices, very devoted, and all of a sudden their entire belief system changed. What would it take for that to happen? What would it take for someone very extreme to have their entire belief structure changed? What would it take for these people? to have their entire belief structure changed? Think about somebody extreme. Think about somebody that has very strong opinions. What does it take for their beliefs to change? You can't change your mind on your favorite place to eat. You've got it and you won't change it. What what would it take for these people to all be wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts? What would it take for, for this person to change their belief structure? What would it take for this person to change their belief structure? You don't know who this is. This is a stock photo, middle-aged man in a sweater. This just, this just represents your uncle that you disagree with politically, on whatever side it is, that you argue with at Thanksgiving. I don't know, you know. He's a Democrat. He's a Republican. He's an independent. I don't know. But what would it take for him to change his beliefs? I mean, think about it. These people, these Jewish people went from making sacrifices to saying Jesus was our sacrifice. To worshiping at the temple, to saying Jesus is our temple, to saying there's only one God, to saying we believe Jesus is God. That's a huge radical shift. The Japanese novelist who wrote the book Silence, which was a, a movie came out last year that was an Oscar-nominated movie, great, great film. He said this: if the resurrection did not happen, if it didn't happen, then we're forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. Saying, look, okay, you don't have to believe the resurrection, okay? You don't have to believe it. But something happened. Something, maybe an alien came down from earth then. I mean, something radical took place that shifted and changed them dramatically. So the first group of people, maybe this is you. You go, it's crazy. I just want you to consider those things. The second group of people was people that said, we want to learn more. We've got some questions. Look, if that's you, I'm so glad you're here. We want this church to always be a church where you can ask questions. And so if you're in the second group of people that actually says, look, I don't know what I believe, but I want to learn more. We are thankful you are here. And my appeal to you is this. Actually do that. Don't just say, man, I want to learn more. This is really interesting. What if Jesus is the one that can fill the longings? What if the resurrection? Ask questions. Learn more. A great opportunity to do that is to come to the pastor's lunch or the introduction class or just start showing up on Sundays. But ask your questions. This is a safe place to ask your questions and process. And the final group, it says, joined and believed. It says there was some. Some people thought he was crazy. Some people were curious. And some people committed. Some people joined and believed. And this is really important because... The language he uses of join and believe is is very, very important. Because some of you believe the resurrection. Some of you actually say, "I, I, I believe it. But you're going it alone. You're going through life alone. And Paul says, the resurrection, if it's true, is not just an idea that you can believe and then go on with your life. It's an idea that radically reshapes your life. That actually makes it that if this is true, if Jesus is God, then our whole life is His. And there's a joining and a believing that must take place. That we say, okay, I join, which means I let my life be shaped by you. That we need other people in our lives. That we need community in our lives. That we need not just to believe a fact, but to join a family. This is what Paul said happened when people got it. You cannot fully experience life by yourself. You can't fully experience what God has for you by yourself. And so my appeal to you would be this. Look, if, you're, if you believe, maybe today is the first time you believe, or if you're a Christian and you've believed for a long time, my appeal to you is this. Believe, yes, but join. Align yourself with God and his purposes and his family and let the truth of the resurrection shape your life from the inside out. Let the power enter into your life and change you from the inside out. And a great opportunity, again, to do that is you can come to the introduction class and begin to see what does that look like? What does that mean? Look, here's what Paul says. Paul says we all have longings. We all have these hungers. We all have these desires. We all have these these satisfaction-driven things that we're pursuing. And Paul says there's more. Jesus brings life to you, and you can experience it. Jesus brings life to you, and it can change you. You must align yourself with him and his people and see it change your life. And what we're going to do is we're going to take communion. We remember that Jesus was crucified for us. that His death is the gracious God that we all need that says, I'm not holding it against you. I want something for you. I will kill my son for your life, to give you life. And then we'll sing. We'll sing songs to celebrate how good this God is. And then we're going to have some people that get baptized saying that they want to experience, that they have experienced life with Jesus. So this is what we're going to do now. I'm going to pray, and uh, we will continue in our time celebrating this. Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news that you bring to us. Thank you that we can have life with you. God, I thank you that you are a gracious God that has come to us, That, that we do not have to We do not have to work for you. We do not have to try to please you. We don't have to try to serve you, but you're a God that's come to serve us. You're a God that's come to save us. I pray, Lord, for anyone in this room that doesn't know this truth, that even as we sing and and do baptisms, that you would show them that this is who you are. And Lord, I pray for everybody in here that, that if we do believe, that we would not just believe, but we would actually join and be a part of your family. So I thank you for these things, Jesus. In your name.